Hello and welcome to the End-Stage Renal Disease Treatment Choices Learning Collaborative, or ETCLC, podcast series. In these episodes, we'll hear from transplant, donation, and organ procurement organization professionals as they share their experiences, data-proven interventions, and lessons learned as we collectively strive toward our national aims for more kidneys transplanted and fewer kidneys discarded. We do have a couple of questions in the chat box. What was the percentage of kidneys that required pumping? Um, uh, Tyler, I know you addressed that. Do you want to just briefly uh, re-articulate that? uh, Just Yeah, within the 2022-2023, we had 39% of those kidneys that were pumped. But again, that and we'll see that number, um, you know, increase likely with the additional resources that are being added as well. This this time frame was really designed to kind of get the team up to speed, um, you know, obviously collect the data to see what benefit were we were gaining from this new technology. But but again, we we suspect that once we have four kidney pumps, you know, 24 hour 24-7 and preservation is availability, this will increase significantly. So it's hard, in my mind, it's really hard to derive, you know, conclusions in regard to the number of kidneys pumped um, and the potential because of that limitation. It was more of a guide to the other providers. Um, this bottom line probably plays the biggest role Right. So if there's multiple kidneys, a kidney comes in that late, instead of letting it sit on a box for, you know, that time period, we're going to put that on a pump. But obviously for those, you know, patients with cold times greater than 24 hours, this really opened up the market, so to speak, because using static cold storage, you know, our center historically wouldn't go well beyond this time frame, depending on obviously pertinent donor factors. So we did, we know we've, you know, our average cold ischemic time is is probably increased um, significantly. We haven't, we haven't actually looked at it, but I can tell you anecdotally that's increased. And obviously, you know, those kidneys that have a higher, you know, risk for DGF, we wanted to make sure we capture them as well. You know, there are some DCD donors, as Mr. L highlighted, that if, you know, they get here and we're ready to go to the OR, we'll just go. Same with the high KDPI. I mean, you know, if the kidney gets here at, at, at 7.30 in the morning, we're not going to put it on a pump and wait. We're just going to go ahead and and use it. You know, I'm sure, you know, over time we might tweak it um, and make adjustments as needed. Awesome. All right. Thank you for that response. And then Reem also had a question. So he's basically said they don't have the money or the staff to purchase their own pumps or to even hire an Eric uh, for their um, organization, but they do partner with their local OPO who would then put the the organs on a pump for them. I know you didn't have that option, right, Dr. Watkins? I don't think your OPO, your local OPO um, had pumps, but I think after they saw your success, they went out and purchased some pumps. Is that correct? Can you tell yeah, us? A thank, little thank, yeah, thank you. Thank you. First, historically, where you know, I think is high variability around the country where I, I moved here from New York. So New York transplant centers did not um, pump the kidneys. Our local OPO did. So that was the only thing that I was familiar with. That, that was the only approach that I was personally familiar with. Um but, but, you know, and historically there had been efforts to work with the OPO here 
um, to, you know, to do this, but there was, you know, there were challenges, you know, in, in regards to accomplishing that. After we started pumping kidneys in a matter of less than, I want to say less than three months, um, the, our local OPO actually did uh, purchase um, two pumps. And I was recently with the medical director two nights ago at a vid, and he actually said they're in the process of trying to uh, get additional pumps. <clears throat> But this, you know, this this challenge exists in other parts of the country. I think in, I know when I, you know, another step I took in, in in this in regards to implementing this here is I reached out to a transplant surgeon I know who works in New Jersey, and he had set up his own preservation lab for both kidneys and livers. So I did reach out to him to kind of assess any, you know, how he went about, you know, setting this up and um and the logistics. I I would just suggest that. You know, as the data says, there is a cost benefit um, from using this technology. And I do think there's more transplants that can be performed. So I think one of the ways that centers can potentially, you know, try to um, push for getting this is, is, tr is showing that that cost benefit, you know, analysis. And, and, and perhaps that might help um, procuring some of the funds necessary to hire someone, but it, it, it is not, it is not easy. And we were fortunate to hire, you know, to have the ability and the resources to hire someone um, and also have um, in a location for this to be done. Although it also can be done in the OR, so there's creative ways. We, although we have a separate room right now, it's important to note that you can, you can kind of do this in an empty OR, you know, put it on a pump. And then once it's on a pump, it can kind of, you can sit at the at the at the front desk by the OR if need be, which is what I've seen done in multiple other centers. That's awesome. And it, and I would like to add, I mean, there's certainly an advantage of having this technology in-house in the transplant center as opposed to the OPO. And mainly just because the OPO has their own set of limitations as well. Uh, you know, if in the case that you're importing kidneys and the OPO is pumping them for you, if their pumps are being used then your, your hands are kind of tied. So uh, having this type of technology in-house kinds of, you know, gives us the freedom to, to really pick and choose what organs we're going to put on uh, and really, you know, not have to depend on a, on a third party for support. And, you know, I, I came from the, the center that I worked at before. We had, uh, we had our own pumps and the OPO pumped every kidney that they recovered. Uh, and it was a great partnership. Uh, but in the you know in situations where OPOs have limited resources, I think it's this is definitely something uh, that should you know be under consideration for a transplant center that's serious about doing this. Thank you for that. All right, we have a few minutes remaining, and I, we still have quite a few questions. How and why was the goal of a DGF rate of twenty five percent chosen? And is that for all KDPI offers? How has the use of pumps affected your length of stay? You know, we kind of looked at what our current DGF rate was. Um, and truthfully, there was an element of guessing where we could potentially get. I, would, I won't say that I based that on any um, particular data per se. Um, I will also say that the, 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 the kidney pump implementation was only one strategy there's been a lot of other simultaneous things that we've done since i've been here that truthfully have have in, increased our risk of dgf but i do still i'm still optimistic um that um with the additional pumps that if we can 
either get to 25% or approach it. I mean, we've decreased it by 3%. And again, this is also with us being a little bit more aggressive with, um, you know, donor recipient matching. So with those higher KDPI kidneys that historically our center was actually declining, you know, we're now taking those kidneys and just putting them in patients uh, lower on the list with higher EPTS scores. So you're going to see an increased risk of DGF with some of some of those factors. How has the use of pumps affected your length of stay? Oh, yeah. So the length of stay, you know, we it hasn't affected our length of stay, truthfully, truthfully, because, you know, what we're, we're really pretty aggressive um, with with um, discharging those patients um, who still are on dialysis is discharging them back to their home dialysis center. Um, so we have. I don't, I don't know. We haven't actually, that's a good point. Ty. We should probably take a co- closer look at that because we haven't honed in on that just yet. There hasn't been a significant change per se. And it hasn't really decreased it per se. And it hasn't increased it. And again, you know, I keep saying this over and over again, but again, you know, it's, you know, we haven't had it 24 seven. There's been multiple times when both pumps are being occupied. And so we don't have another pump available. Our, our liver team does a lot of uh, SLKs, a lot, and, and sometimes they might use a pump. And so for, for, for these variety of reasons, um, we still the, the data is still very limited, and I think we'll be able to get some more insight once we're fully up to speed. All right. Thank you for your response there. All right. I'm, I'm going to ask Dr. Cooper, if you don't mind coming off of mute. First off, Anthony and team, congratulations. Great work. And this is a perfect example of how this collaborative is expected to work. These are certainly ideas which I think a lot of us can take home. I've been a big proponent of pumps for a long time. It's just the way that you described the introduction, it isn't as clear in the literature. And so I really would hope at the end of the day, your team is able to pull some of this data and publish it so that, again, it becomes a resource for all of us. But my question is, you know, we often get the offers of of one or the other or the other, my, my, but typically the offer is a DCD donor that's high KDPI in 24 hours of cold time. And so those are the challenging ones that you get in the middle of the night and you're trying to figure out, is there an opportunity for potential transplant? So, so do you have, or can you in the future think about, you know, really drilling down to figuring out which kidneys are in which category and which kidneys are in multiple categories again, with their success rate and being transplanted with all of the follow-up data that you have, length of stay, DGF, and, you know, ultimately outcomes, because that's what people want to see is, you know, how do these kidneys do, for instance, at one year? But I, again, I, I commend you on this, and I, I hope folks are, you know, taking some good notes. You know, I jotted a bunch of things down. We have a great OPO that's working to collaborate with us, but our surgeons aren't so convinced that the pumping data makes a difference. So if, if you're able to demonstrate that, this is stuff you really want to get in the literature. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate that. It's interesting because, you know, one of the one of the things that I really learned moving here from New York is that depending on where you live and work, you know, your access to transplant is much different. So in New York, where I trained and worked for a decade, you know, we used pumps left and right. The most of our deceased donors were imported. Um, and you really learn the, I call it the art of which kidneys can still be used and, 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 and be worthwhile. You know, it's the Ferrari versus the Buick that I like to kind of describe to patients. And, you know, when I got here, um, you know, a lot of local donors 
Um, really, the program was doing a great job without pumps, right? So why pump? You know, when I was in New York, there's a lot of kidneys from this area that I was accepting. Is there an opportunity for us to, you know, prevent those kidneys from leaving our area and um, providing access to, you know, our older patients or our patients who are going to be disadvantaged by their waiting time? It is obviously an older population. And there's a lot of snowbirds who live in the northeast and other parts of the country who are here for the summer. But so I've I've kind of slowly and strategically um, graded, so to speak, the aggressiveness of, you know, of the program and using the pumps. We're kind of doing it in a very slow and steady um, way, so to speak. So um, I haven't been as aggressive here as I was in New York, but the goal is to get there. And yeah, I think it will be important once we are there to kind of, um, you know, really show that data because if I suspect it, if it if it shows what I think it will, then it hopefully can be yet another, um, you know, resource or another data set for people to be convinced that this is meaningful um, and this can improve outcomes for our patients and it can improve. <laughs> You know, at least for the kidney surgeons, the quality of our of our lives. You know, we we rarely are doing transplants overnight now. With this, you get a kidney with twenty four hours of cold time, and it's a DCD, and it's a sixty year old. If it comes at eight o'clock, you're going to do it at eight o'clock. You know, whereas you know this does allow some wiggle room, so to speak, um, with with this technology. I think you're right, though, in regards to really getting some more granular data and teasing out those the different types of donors and the outcomes with the pumping and um, adding to the data that is available so people can, you know, make better informative decisions about using these pumps. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ETCLC podcast series. We encourage you to steal shamelessly, as we say, any recommendations and best practices shared by the presenters and their organizations. We encourage you to listen to our other podcasts that help support and improve your transplant work. Also visit our LinkedIn page, ETCLC. Follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at ETCLC1, and check out our YouTube channel for more resources available at ESRD-ETCLC.